Today's reading is Luke 5, 27 through 39. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch the old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest students, first through fourth graders, you can head out to the lobby to find your teachers. The rest of you may be seated. Hi, everybody. Good to be with you this morning. Um, I'd like to pray, and then we'll get into... God's Word. I trust that God wants to speak to you and to me and to us as a community, and my prayer is that we would be open to what it is He has to say. So let's pray together. God, you are the one who speaks. You are the one who is with us. You commit all the way down to being near and to leading and to shepherding us. Help us to point away from ourselves to you so that you might be the shepherd that guides the one that speaks, the one that protects, ultimately the one that heals and restores and convicts. God, I pray that we might, as your people, be open to what it is you have to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we continue in the Gospel of Luke, still in chapter 5, but also moving into chapter 6. 
We have the crazy task this morning of going from Luke 5, 27, all the way through 6, 11, which is insane. So we're going to just get going. If you want to turn in your Bibles, the Blue Bibles, to 861, we're just going to go for it. So that's 861. We're going to start in uh, Luke 5, 27. Uh, before that, I suppose some, some of my encouragements to you is what we're going to see this morning um, and what we're going to be moving toward is to really explore this idea of how not to be a Pharisee. Uh, but we're going to look at the landscape of the text and see the ways and these different scenes of how Jesus creates problems, most notably for the Pharisees, and then sort of step back at the end and reflect on what are some of the postures, what are some of the ways of being uh, that the Pharisees inhabit, and how might we um, move in a different direction. But here's the temptation always. When we read texts where there's an antagonist, we assume we are not those people. We read about Pharisees and the scribes, which will come up over and over again, and we can't wait to see how they are. Because, of course, we are not them. Uh, but, turns out we are. So one of my favorite things that I've ever seen, I didn't see this live, but I heard about it, and, and I saw this billboard, uh, and it was exploring this idea of traffic. So the billboard, which you can put up there if you want, Eli, says this. Um, it, it says, you are not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. Why I love this is because who has not, and Esther brought this up last week, who has not been in traffic and been so frustrated that all of this stuff around you is creating this massive problem for you when in fact you are part of that problem. So my hope this morning is that we don't say, oh, look at those Pharisees, but that we assume for a moment we are them. And then we consider from their point of view and perspective the different problems Jesus creates and the different postures that they inhabit and how they might inform or instruct us in the ways that we are. So I'm going to walk through these different scenes. There are four different scenes, and I'm going to walk through them sort of posing the problems that Jesus creates, and then we'll move from there. So in Luke 5, 27 through 29, what we see is Jesus calling this person Levi who we know is a tax collector. Now the thing to know about a tax collector is that they are actually probably the most or at least complicated, despised people because they don't really fit in a lot of different ways. Now tax collectors were employed by the government to go to the Jews, and they were Jews, to get money, the different taxes for the empire to end up working. Now the problem that created is they were of a different status than the Roman Empire, so they were looked down upon, but then they were incredible opportunists, so they took this as an opportunity to then overtax and really betray their people of getting more than what was expected of them so they could sort of take stuff off the top. So these tax collectors think maybe hedge fund managers circa 2006, 2007 are really creating this problem. And so the Pharisees are looking at these tax collectors and Jesus calls one and this one leaves everything, we, we, the, the text says, and then follows Jesus. Maybe a more updated example for all of my succession fans up out there, uh, the tax collector is more like the Tom Wamsgans of, of the Bible. 
this guy who finds himself part of this family who is being manipulated by the top and then therefore ends up manipulating and taking advantage of those who are below. They betray the relational capital from all sides and so they are despised. So imagine the Pharisees see this Jesus or hear about this Jesus calling this person Levi. Not only that, they have a party Levi throws this great banquet. The Pharisees, imagine I am a Pharisee for a moment. I'm walking by this house, probably a better house than others, and I just see this house that's been built on betrayal and greed. And I just think, I can't believe that Jesus would be in this house with this person. But then you look closer, or I look closer as a Pharisee, and not only do I see this person who is a greedy cheat, this crazy opportunist, I see these other morally compromised, sexually questionable people at table with Jesus. How can this be so? This does not fit my categories of what it means to be pure, good, or faithful. And so they ask the question, verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. I don't know why they don't ask Jesus. Maybe he was too occupied being with these other people. He asked the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Even though they pose this question to the disciples, who answers them? Jesus. He says, well, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I, as a Pharisee, might be a little bit uncomfortable or at least confused by this response. So he's saying he didn't, call the, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners, as a Pharisee, do I feel good about that? Because I've always considered myself righteous. Do I feel good about the fact that I'm not sick? Because it, that seems like it's a good thing. But Jesus is sort of flipping the tables of, of who's supposed to be in community with him. So first problem is that Jesus is defining community, saying those he is going to be at table with are those who are sick, in need of a physician, those who aren't righteous, but those who are sinners. This creates a problem for the Pharisees who for so long have set up a system and a structure to maintain some sense of morality and of understanding of how they're to be in relation to God and to others. So then the second problem, I'm actually going to skip um, 5.33 through 39 because I'm going to come back to it. But I want to skip that scene and go to the scene in chapter 6 starting in verse 1 where we see here on the Sabbath day. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, or even if you don't, let me tell you, the Sabbath was this day that was set aside and to be set aside because God commanded the people as part of the law to not do anything, any sort of work, any sort of acquiring, so that they might remember who God has created them to be, that God is the ultimate creator, that he is the sustainer of life, and that they are to then rest. They rest because God himself rested after creating the world. So this sense of rest becomes an identity marker for these Pharisees, for these scribes, and it's part of what it means to follow the law. But they see this Jesus and these disciples going to pluck grain with their hands. Now that's not necessarily the problem, 
because they're hungry and maybe there's allowance for that. But the Pharisees have set up, they've set up this idea of what work is. You can pluck it, but to grind it in your hands actually transgresses the law because they have defined that as work. So all of these things and ideas that the Pharisees have suggested to be work, the ways that they've interpreted the law, catches these disciples and this Jesus out of bounds. So they say in verse 2, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And then he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now imagine again, I, as a Pharisee, understand what the law has taught. Not only that, not only have I wanted to be faithful to to the law, I've wanted to be so careful not to transgress it that I've created a lot of different boundary markers so that I don't even get close to crossing the line. But then what happens as a result of that, people who then grind this grain between their fingers end up transgressing the law and I need to call it out. But Jesus challenges these Pharisees and their interpretation of the law by bringing up a story of the Old Testament of what David did and what it was lawful for David to do because he and those who were with him were hungry. Now this creates another problem because Jesus is defining interpretation of what the law is to do and to mean. Now again, I as a Pharisee find this problematic Because not only has Jesus disrupted my categories of who's in and who's out, Jesus has now disrupted my categories of how I even come to the conclusions of who's in, who's out, and what to do and what not to do. That's a problem. And then Jesus makes this statement at the end, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Hanging on this question of what does that even mean? And if there's any question, Jesus will then show them in verse 6. Again, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Again, this posture of the Pharisees thinking, wondering, what is this Jesus going to do? They see the landscape of the issue and the problem. How is Jesus going to act? Because if I, as a Pharisee, know something, it's that even to heal or to do anything in the synagogue, this religious pinnacle of worship, I know that this would be work, and again, a transgression of the law. But Jesus... He knew their thoughts. He knows my thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. This is almost like an embodied theater moment. Jesus is is having this human example of what's about to take place and of his lordship on on the Sabbath, of how to interpret this law as been given by God. Come and stand here, he says. The man rises and stands there. And then Jesus said to them, The Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him was, stretch out your hand. The man did, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
So again, I as a Pharisee am watching this happen. I know I can possibly catch Jesus in the act of transgressing the law because to heal would be out of bounds how have I've set up and understood the system. But then Jesus, because he's Jesus and he's clever and creative, all he says to the man is to stand up and then stretch out your hand and it's healed. So on what bounds do the Pharisees have to actually accuse him? What did Jesus actually do besides call a man to stand there and then tell him to reach out his hand and then that hand was restored? The Pharisees Pharisees are frustrated because there is no evidence as to what has happened. All they have is this claim that Jesus made in the previous scene that he's going to be Lord of the Sabbath and then this moment where Jesus didn't really do anything but be there and this man's hand was restored. Again, this suggestion that to be Lord of the Sabbath is to both interpret the Sabbath, but also to have authority of what takes place on the Sabbath, so much authority that he can suggest a thing to happen by having a man stretch out his hand, and the thing actually happens. And then what do the Pharisees do? They leave angry, wondering, and discussing with one another what they are going to do with the Pharisees. So then let's go back up to, to the end of chapter 5, 33 through 39, to really f- explore what is at stake, what's at issue here. And Jesus gives us a sense of what's actually happening. And they, talking about the Pharisees again, said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And then he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Okay, so what, what's going on here? We have garments, we have patches, we have wine, we have wine skins. Uh, none of that really makes sense. Um, so what Jesus is, is describing here and, and fasting and bridegrooms and weddings. What's going on here is this. The, the Pharisees are saying, why, why is it that your disciples don't do these things? We have disciples of the Pharisees, they fast. The disciples of John, they fast. But yours eat and drink. What's the deal? So then Jesus tells the story. He tells the story about, well, why would you have somebody fast when fast is really in anticipation of the wedding when the wedding is actually begun and it's time for celebration? He's saying this because what they can't understand, what I as a Pharisee cannot understand, is that the question is not about, am I like this, a disciple of this person or a disciple of this person? The question is, Jesus is here, so what does it mean to be his disciple? Because he trumps all systems. He is the one to follow. But also more than that, If to fast is to anticipate some longing, some desire of what's to come, Jesus is saying that has already happened. 
There is no need to fast because the wedding is at hand. Part of the problem is that you can't see that forgiveness has come, is walking down the streets, that people are made new, and that it is time to party. So then he tells this parable. If you take a patch from, some, from a new garment that hasn't been washed and hasn't been shrunk, so if you take a new patch and put it on a, pa- on a garment that has gone through that process, then what will happen is as that new patch shrinks, it will tear and rip. So if you try to take what's new and what's taking place in Jesus and then place it on the old and make it fit, there's going to be a greater rift. So wine, in the wineskins, this process, what would happen is you'd put wine in in new wineskins because then the natural process of fermentation would expand the wineskins and the wineskins would grow and adapt to the new wine. But if you put new wine into old wineskins, it won't be able to contain and hold this new fermentation process and it will burst. Again, what you cannot do is take what is new in Jesus and try to fit it into the old thing. What needs to happen is that you need to take the old thing and ask the question, how does that relate to the Jesus that has come and the kingdom that is at hand? Do you see the difference there? You can't take this new thing and say, oh, it has to fit in this. And that's what the Pharisees could not do and could not understand of how to make it fit. The problem is the order. It begins with Jesus, and the questions go from there. N.T. Wright says this about these wineskins. If you try to fit Jesus' new work into the thought forms and behavior patterns of John's movement or the Pharisees' movement, then all you get is an explosion, or all you get is a greater rift. Because the problem with fitting is that you're starting in the wrong place. You need to begin with Jesus. So you have these problems that are raised about who defines community, who determines interpretation, and then this displaying of authority. And these Pharisees at odds with what's happening. And so I really want to talk about how not to be a Pharisee, to explore the ways and postures that they inhabit that might then prevent, or talking about it in the, in the inverse, what are the postures and habits that we might need to inhabit to be careful that we don't become like the Pharisees? Well, here's the first thing. Assume in some way you already are one. So the first thing of not becoming or being a Pharisee is assume that in some way you already are one. Imagine yourself already at odds with Jesus. Because then that is a good place to begin of how you might need to be shaped and formed by this Jesus. Because the Pharisees, it is so easy to tear them down. But what they were after, they were after some theological some moral faithfulness, purity. That is a good thing. What they could not understand is that God's law, or what they maybe came to fail to understand, is that God's law really gave them the freedom to be those things and to learn how to be those things and instead created other ways 
other systems, other structures that then began to define what it meant to be faithful or pure. If you think of a picture, what they began to do, these Pharisees, was they began to create these these borders around themselves so that they would not be contaminated or dirty or influenced in any way. They began to do that around themselves, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and is starting to hang out with all of the people who are on the other side of the wall. That's confusing and disruptive and completely disorienting. So how do we not be a Pharisee? We assume that in some way we already are one because we all are after and desire some sense of faithfulness, some sense of purity, some sense of what it means to actually do good. And those are good pursuits, worthy pursuits, but they need to be informed by Jesus And this is not just a religious problem. Our culture is full of Pharisees because Pharisees exist wherever human hearts seem to reside. This is a religious problem as we've been discussing in Luke. This is also a cultural problem. Because we want cultural purity, ideological purity, political purity. We are after this idea of what it means to fit, and we are wanting to clarify what those bounds are so that we know who's in and who's out, who can be at the table or who cannot be at the table. This is not just a religious problem, this is a heart problem, and this is what we see in culture. Cancel culture is a form of pharisaical belief and living. And cancel culture can happen outside of the church and it can happen inside of the church. We are not after that. What we are after is Jesus' culture of how he informs and instructs and leads and guides and shepherds. So how not to be a Pharisee? Recognize that in some way you probably already are one. And what we need to begin to cultivate are postures that sort of protect us or at least show us and move us in a different direction. And the first one is that we really need to cultivate some humility. We need to cultivate humility. We need to cultivate the sense that we, in fact, are people who need to be saved, who need to be shown mercy, who need to be given God's grace. The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is they could never see themselves as sick, They could never see themselves as in need of a physician. They could never see themselves as in need of forgiveness. That's a problem. Because Jesus comes on the scene and begins to hang out with all these people who don't fit the mold and begins to confuse them. And part of the problem for the Pharisees is they don't want to assume that they are those types of people because then what it then reflects about what they've been about or what they do. To be next to a person who is sick To be at table with a person who is sick or to be at table with a person who's a sinner means that somehow to be at the table, I am also one of them. That is something I, as a person, often want to reject because I don't like taking a look in the mirror often. Eugene Peterson says this, for as long as we hold on to any pretense of having it all together, 
we are prevented from deepening and maturing in the Christian faith. For as long as we avoid recognition of our lostness, we are prevented from experiencing the elegant profundities of foundness. We should always begin from the place of one of the lost. Because Jesus leaves the 99 to find one of us if we are lost. But I want a world where I can know and remember that I am one of those 99 because it feels good to, to, to suggest that I'm lost in any way is a scary, unsettling, out-of-control feeling. But it requires a sense of humility to recognize that I'm a person who needs. Second thing is to cultivate a sense of openness, an openness to Jesus, that Jesus becomes the one who actually has something to say to me. That Jesus actually has, has, has a way that he wants to guide and lead me and shepherd me. Again, the Pharisees want it the other way around. They know how this is supposed to fit or how this new thing is supposed to fit into the old thing, not how this new thing is supposed to redefine or reinterpret everything they thought they knew. But this is like a sense of giving up your control, right? And we don't like to do that. I do not want to give up my sense of control. I know very clearly, most of the time, what's good and right and leads to the good life. Truth, trust me, I know that. I do. I know that because I live that. And if you think you don't know that, that's, that's just a false reality you're living in. Every decision you make and I make every single day suggests something about what I believe about the world. That I believe what gives me life, what I believe what's going to give me good, just full wholeness. I make decisions based on how I've understood and believe and interpret that. So a sense of openness is to take a step back and to look and to be aware and to attend to the ways that I have decided things should be. Sometimes in at odds with how Jesus is supposed to determine how things are to be. But this requires a certain sense of curiosity about ourselves, about what God wants, that things aren't closed down, but that there is a sense of being able and willing for a long period of time to discern and be open with people of God who take the scriptures seriously and then discern what God might have. And this is something that we have the gift of being able to do because Jesus died, he rose again, and he remains present in the spirit. This is available to us. Jesus is our shepherd shepherding us. I am not shepherding you. I am a shepherd here part of this church as we are all called in some ways to be shepherds and pastors but there is one shepherd that person's name is Jesus and he is your shepherd and my shepherd and our shepherd together what we need to become and learn how to do is a community who takes that seriously and is open to the shepherding God and that is a lot of work and slow work and takes a long period of time and it's something that we have the time for because Jesus has given it 
to us. The last thing is that we need to cultivate trust. What's fascinating here and trust in the authority and lordship of Jesus. Because that's what, that's what Jesus claims. I am the son of man is lord over the Sabbath. Which is to suggest he is lord over, over, over the world, over the earth, over however we think the law should be. Jesus is lord even over that. Now if you were to take where, this, where we start in this passage and where we end, it's really interesting and instructive. So Jesus, he calls Levi, right? This tax collector who should not be allowed in, but he is. And what does Levi do at the beginning? Jesus says, follow me. Levi leaves, stands up. He's sitting down, he stands up. He leaves everything and he follows Jesus. Where does the passage end in 6.11? The Pharisees, the Pharisees leave furious, discussing what they are going to do to Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Because the question always for a disciple is, what is Jesus going to do with me? But the Pharisees, they don't have that question. They're thinking, what am I going to do with this Jesus? But the question before us always is, what is Jesus going to do with me? And am I a person who is open to whatever that Jesus is going to do? Do I trust and depend on that Jesus to do with me what is required? to have authority over my life. Because we resist, I resist authority almost at every moment possible because I want to be Lord over my life. But Jesus and the Jesus way is a different suggestion altogether. It's can you trust and depend on me and my lordship over you and is that something that we can handle? Is that something we can give up? Is depend upon the one who is going to define the terms of community, who is going to define the terms of interpretation, and who is ultimately going to define the terms of authority and what it means to be a person who can follow and let Jesus do with me what he will. But that, that, that assumes a certain type of posture and a certain type of openness and a certain type of willingness to trust that God knows best, that he is Lord, and that he isn't just Lord over my life, but that he is Lord over your lives too. And so that his lordship over your life, his lordship over my life, we are in it together and we are to be a community of people who truly take seriously that that, that is what God is calling us to and that we can then discern what it is he's up to. So how do we not be a Pharisee? That we cultivate a certain life of humility, of openness, and trust. And that we let Jesus create the right problems. And so that we can then be people who in reference to those problems are open to the way that Jesus is leading to the way that he wants to display authority. Because if we think about this text, Jesus wanted to eat with people. Jesus wanted to nourish people. Jesus wanted to heal people. And there were people, these Pharisees, who created these ways where 
there was no access to that. They couldn't imagine how, how people could have access to that type of Jesus. So may Jesus, I guess, reform our imaginations so that we can be humble, open, and trusting of who this Jesus is. And so here's, what I want to leave, here's where I want to leave you, with Jesus. And I mean that seriously. I want to leave you right now with Jesus. So we're going to take a moment, a couple moments. Brandon and the worship team are going to come up. And they're going to, um, there's going to be some music underneath. But I want you to sit in a reflective mode with some prayers that I'm going to put up on the screen that I would love for you to pray with Jesus right now. So if you want to put those questions up. And these are prayers. They're, they're questions, but these, these are prayers to Jesus to let Jesus inform and speak to. First one is, where do I forget my lostness and avoid my need to be found? That's a real question and a real prayer I want you to ask God. God, where do I forget my lostness and avoid my need to be found? Second one, where am I closed off to your understanding and way of love? It's a real thing I want you to wrestle in relationship with Jesus. Lastly, where am I afraid and resist your authority? Where am I afraid and resist your authority? So I'm going to pray and ask that God would speak to you as you pray those things, and then we will continue in our worship together. God, you, yeah, you speak. I pray that you'd help me to see the various ways that I sort of hold you at arm's length, the ways that I avoid my need, deny my lostness, the ways that I resist your authority. God, there are so many ways that I know you want to be you want to be at work in my life, and I also am so aware of all of the ways I resist it. Help us to be people open to the good work that you have to do in shepherding us in your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.